Hello everyone, this is Sam of Historian Splaining. These lectures are on SoundCloud, Stitcher, YouTube, and other platforms. And you may be aware that my last lecture on the great archaeological discoveries is on Patreon for patrons only. But now I'd like to go back to my series that is open to all listeners and to the public on the history of Florida called Fortresses on Sand. So this will be installment number four, and I'm going to talk about the later colonial era of Florida, including the period of British rule, the return to Spanish rule, and then Florida becoming an American territory, leading up eventually to statehood. And that's where I will leave this one off. But there was a lot of dramatic change and development in Florida in this tumultuous period where it was shifted around among multiple different empires and sovereignties. And a pattern, I think, set in in this particular era of Florida history, which has continued to today, which is this repeating cycle of waves of colonization, of new groups of people trying to take advantage of the Florida landscape and environment, often then failing, retreating, and being replaced by the next wave. So this is a lot of where the sort of image and narrative of the history of Florida that I'm trying to capture comes really into focus. So I left off my last lecture at 1763, which is the year in which sovereignty over Florida was transferred from Spain to Great Britain as part of a complicated diplomatic deal at the end of the Seven Years' War. So in the later months of that year, in 1763, the British begin to set up a new government in Florida. They create a royal government with royally appointed governors and small staffs of officials running basically the two zones of Florida, with East Florida centered on St. Augustine and West Florida with a colonial capital at Pensacola. They send small garrisons of British soldiers to defend the two main towns and nearby fortresses, but they're not really big enough to effectively defend the territory, and so in theory they will be bolstered and supported by militias drawn from the colonists. The British also replace the position of the Roman Catholic Church. They establish the Anglican Church as the state church of the colony with paid Anglican ministers. So in these sorts of ways, the British basically just supplant and more or less copy the Spanish regime that had been there before. But the British Empire takes a very different approach to colonization and the exploitation of colonies. So rather than trying to send in small numbers of conquistadores and colonizers to basically take over and dominate existing local societies, instead the British approach tends to be to send in larger populations to completely overwhelm and displace the natives and exploit the land directly. And this is partly because the British government had a large excess population of basically destitute people that they saw as undesirable or dangerous in England and Ireland that they could then sort of conveniently ship abroad to colonize and exploit foreign countries. So this is more or less the approach that they tended to take in Florida, at least to a much greater degree than the Spanish did. 
this had already happened to a great degree along most of the Atlantic seaboard, right? You can think of the so-called 13 colonies with hundreds of thousands of British colonists stretching from Nova Scotia down to Georgia. But as those colonies had expanded westward, the British had started to encounter serious resistance, especially west of the Appalachians in the Mississippi Valley. And so when it came to Florida, the British saw a convenient opportunity to try to contain the westward expansion of those other colonies to the north to try to minimize and manage conflicts with the indigenous people and instead redirect that migration southward down into Florida. So they saw Florida as a possible sort of escape valve for that those expanding colonial populations. And they appointed a governor named James Grant, who started to receive this migration of new colonists. And he took the step, for one thing, of recognizing the Indians' rights to control the interior of Florida. So basically, from his viewpoint, the actual exploitable land that could be brought under cultivation and colonized was along the Atlantic and Gulf coasts, whereas in the interior, he basically ceded control of that to the indigenous people, most of all, of course, to this Seminole Confederation, which had formed just a bit earlier in the 1700s and was now a serious power in the interior. But Grant did move to aggressively colonize the coasts, and he oversaw a system that quickly gave out many large land grants to investors, speculators, possible planters, and also gave out cash bonuses to British war veterans and also to planters and colonizers who offered to produce particular commodities for export back to Britain. So the British government hoped that they could reduce their dependency on Spanish and French imports of things like indigo, sugar, coffee, and so on. So under Grant's government, dozens of new plantations were cleared and cultivated, mainly along St. John's River, the large tidal river that runs from near St. Augustine in northeastern Florida down southward into the interior. So this became the main sort of thoroughfare of this new British colonization. And most of these plantations produced cotton and indigo. Many of them were total failures. They just didn't know how to deal with the landscape, the climate. They couldn't get the necessary materials or skilled labor. So many just quickly failed. But by about 1766, a few years after the British takeover, some of them were succeeding. And also there was something of a frontier of cattle ranches as it was found that some of this subtropical savanna in northern and central Florida was conducive to cattle ranching. So with this growing agrarian base, St. Augustine and Pensacola began to grow again. And they had populations with many middle-class merchants and artisans managing trade in and out of the growing colony. And especially a lot of them were Scots. The Scottish had been basically shut out of the growing English overseas empire 
up until the union of England and Scotland in 1707. This is when Scots then were able to get government offices, army offices, and more favorable treatment and colonization. And so there started to be an influx of Scots, and then this really especially peaked in these sort of boom years right after the Seven Years' War, when Britain was riding high, it had all kinds of new territories. So there was a wave of largely Scottish migrants into Florida, including into the towns of St. Augustine and Pensacola. And this is marked in part then by the appearance of the first Masonic lodges in Florida, which had been illegal under Spanish rule. But now lodges were set up in St. Augustine in 1768 and in Pensacola in 1771, and they gained their warrants from the Grand Lodge of Scotland, you know, showing this close connection to the Scottish diaspora. And they served as one of the sort of institutions around which a civil society started to coalesce in these, this new British colony. So there was significant regrowth mainly in these core areas, firstly around St. Augustine and to the south on St. John's River and to some degree in the west around Pensacola. But to the British, this wasn't necessarily enough. They had still higher ambitions. So the imperial managers, it seems, had some sort of dreams or hopes of creating a larger plantation agrarian colony similar to South Carolina or Jamaica that could really be lucrative to the empire. And especially they looked at this large stretch of land extending south of St. Augustine and, and Matanzas to St. John's River and even further down. And this seemed like it could be very appealing. It could be conducive to a larger plantation colony. But the main problem, of course, was that this colony ran north-south. The peninsula runs north-south, and the climate changes significantly as you progress further south. It becomes more hot, wetter summers. It really quickly turns into a tropical environment. So the British agents, adventurers, investors had to come up with some way to try to master and exploit this tropical environment below St. Augustine. And this is what gave rise to the so-called New Smyrna Enterprise. And this was really the first effort by colonizers to create another large town and plantation complex beyond St. Augustine and Pensacola. So the idea of New Smyrna was hatched and acted upon by three Scottish adventurers who were business partners. Firstly, the Scottish physician Andrew Turnbull, who was probably the first conceiver of the idea, and his associates William Duncan and Richard Temple. So the three of them jointly got title to a tract of 20,000 acres, on the Atlantic coast, south of Matanzas, and a, a total of about 70 miles south of St. Augustine. So just far enough that the environment was markedly different, and they were somewhat isolated from St. Augustine. So they had the land and the ambition to exploit it. Now, how would they get the labor? They needed a large number of people who they believed could master and exploit a torrid or hot climate. They called it sort of the torrid zone. 
and who would hopefully know about survival and farming and the proper crops for this sort of region. You know, a lot of people still thought like, oh, maybe we can grow bananas or, <laughs> or olives. There were a lot of those sorts of ideas around. They didn't really know well exactly what would work in this sort of environment. So where did they turn? Well, it happened that the physician Turnbull had spent many years and traveled extensively in the Mediterranean world. And that was a world that Britain more and more was having closer and closer contact with through all kinds of new colonies, through, through Gibraltar, Malta, through trade and diplomacy with the Ottoman Empire. And Turnbull had studied medicine for a time in Greece, which was under Ottoman rule at this time. And he had served briefly as a British consul representing Britain in Smyrna, a Greek and Turkish port city on the Aegean in the Ottoman Empire. And his wife, Gracia, was Greek and had been born in Smyrna. So he had a personal connection there. And he believed that they could draw on the growing British power in the Mediterranean to get the sort of laborers that could exploit the environment in Florida. So in 1767, he sent Richard Temple as an agent to travel around the eastern Mediterranean to try to take on and hire peasant laborers as indentured servants that would then be brought to Florida. And several hundred were gathered from Greece and Turkey, but the Ottoman officials were hostile and tried to discourage their recruiting, not surprisingly. And so he went west into the western Mediterranean. He gathered a few more indentured laborers from Italy and Corsica. And then finally, he went to the Balearic Islands, this small island chain in the western Mediterranean near Spain. And it happened that Britain had just gained control of Menorca from Spain in the Seven Years' War. So it was a newly conquered British territory. And it had suffered several years of crop failures, leading to destitution and, and desperation among much of the peasantry. And so here, Temple was able to recruit over 1,100 laborers. And ultimately, at the end of the year, a total of 1,403 servants were gathered together at the port of Gibraltar, which was under British rule, and they set sail in April 1768 towards Florida. So over 100 of them died at sea, and when they finally landed at this site, which had been named New Smyrna in honor of the birthplace of Trumbull's wife, they found that housing had been constructed and prepared for only about 500. So either someone had fallen down on the job or there was some miscommunication, but there wasn't even enough housing for half of them. And so most of them had to then take shelter in just quick and crudely constructed palm huts. And from that point, they suffered through three years of privation, hunger, tropical diseases, and losses to the dangerous tropical environment. So as you probably know, the Mediterranean and Florida are very different. Florida has much more intensely wet and stormy summers and a different kind of wildlife environment with different predators, insects, venomous snakes, and so on. And so these newcomers from places like Corsica or Greece really were not at all prepared for this new environment. Even if they had survived the heat, it was not the same as Florida. And they didn't know how to deal, especially with venomous animals and with strange predators like alligators, which can be avoided pretty well if you know how to do so. But these were all new dangers. 
So they lost hundreds of more people, but nonetheless, they still managed under oppressive discipline. They managed to plant crops like sugarcane, indigo, rice, and hemp, most of which did grow well in that tropical environment. And they were able to construct crucial and really in many ways very impressive works like a large stone mill for pressing and processing sugarcane, wharves for ships, a church, and so on. Also, workers were able to clear a road called the King's Road, connecting across that 70-mile stretch, connecting from St. Augustine to New Smyrna. So by about 1771, these plantations around New Smyrna were in pretty good working order, and they saw some degree of success and prosperity, at least briefly, from about 1771 to 73. But they were then hit by severe droughts between 1773 and 75, They also, as I mentioned, were suffering through very bad treatment. A lot of the managers and overseers on the New Smyrna plantations were former slave drivers and treated the workers with indignity and brutality. They also suffered increasing hostility and harassment from the Indians who were concerned about increasing encroachment into what they considered their domains in the interior. And they also received, of course, very low pay and were working mainly on the hope and expectation that at the end of their indentures, they would be given plots of land for themselves. But by the end of 1775, Turnbull and Duncan were nearly broke from the expenses and the debts that they had incurred. And finally, during the Revolutionary War, as Britain was trying to suppress the colonies to the north. At this time, the new governor of Florida, Governor Tonin, was very suspicious politically of Turnbull and was concerned that he might be sympathetic to the rebels. So he tried to basically undermine the whole new Smyrna enterprise. And he actually sent messages and made overtures to the indentured workers at New Smyrna, saying that they would never get the land that they had been promised, and they would never get cash payments either, and that instead they should simply abandon and come up and join the army and militias to help fight the war against the rebel colonies. So finally in 1777, the remaining surviving 600 workers withdrew north to St. Augustine, They were released from their indenture obligations and given housing in the town. And the main result of this was a lasting Mediterranean, a sort of peculiar, unusual, mixed Mediterranean population in a section of St. Augustine, which is traditionally called Menorcan because most of those Mediterranean workers were in fact from Menorca, but not all of them. There were others like Greeks, Turks, Italians, French, But they had sort of blended together into this group that was called Menorcan, which occupied a particular district of St. Augustine at the northern end of the town, right near the city gates, again being used as kind of a buffer population to help defend the town in case of attack. And the failure of New Smyrna showed the British ignorance of the distinctive tropical environment, although eventually they were able to hit upon the right sort of crops, especially sugarcane. Nonetheless, the heavy losses, the the lost money, the lost time, the lost lives reflected how little understanding they really had of that environment, and it spurred on a desire to fill this gap of ignorance and mystery. And that gap ended up being filled almost right away by a man named William Bartram. 
And William Bartram was the first person to bring real direct knowledge and experience of the natural environment of Florida, the swamps, the marshes, the savannas, to English-speaking audiences. And William Bartram was an American colonist from Pennsylvania. He was the son of an Anglo-American naturalist and botanist named John Bartram, who was from a Quaker heritage in Philadelphia. And in his childhood in the 1740s and 50s, William traveled around with his father through the Appalachians and wild unknown areas like the Pine Barrens in New Jersey. And he showed a great talent for drawing. He was a, he was a natural artist and he had the ability to produce very fine depictions of specimens from life. And in 1765 and 66, he went on a tour around the plantations of Florida along with his father. So right at this time when the British were pumping up this whole plantation enterprise and starting to have some success. And on this tour, they started from St. Augustine and then headed west to view and witness negotiations between British emissaries and the Seminoles. They then traveled around the St. John's River, mainly in a dugout canoe, visiting outposts and plantations. And William began drawing the rich and abundant wildlife around Florida, which made a great impression on him. And he could sometimes also write in evocative and dramatic terms about the world of Florida. And he, he wrote, for example, one passage about a particular swamp, which he described as, quote, a vast plain of water in the middle of a pine forest. It may be termed the Elysium of birds. Some of you who maybe have lived in Florida or Louisiana, the Gulf Coast, know the sort of thing he's talking about. And John and William's reports about Florida were collected and later published in England, and they helped to feed a Florida fever, a sort of fascination with the richness, the wildness of this kind of untamed tropical world, and that helped to then spur on and accelerate more colonization of Florida. Now, after 1766, William Bartram started traveling and exploring more on his own, especially around Georgia where the British colonists were rapidly buying or forcibly seizing tracts of land from the Indians. According to his memoirs that were later printed, he traveled around southern Georgia, at one point encountered a Seminole warrior who was looking to kill any white person that he met, but supposedly he was disarmed by how friendly and diplomatic Bartram was. And this may be an indication, we can't trust this story completely, but it may be an indication that he had mastered some of the diplomatic protocols and language of the southeastern world, which enabled him to continue traveling and surviving. And then later in 1774, William began another journey into East Florida. He began at a British plantation, this time on Amelia Island the island at the far northeastern corner of Florida, right by the Georgia border, which now is being increasingly colonized and cultivated as well. And he toured and commented on Indian mounds. He was interested in the antiquities of the indigenous people. He then proceeded down beyond St. Augustine, up the St. John's River into the interior. He obtained a small sailboat, which he used to sail further upriver and visit more plantations. He set up an office at a small trading outpost next to a Seminole village, 
which facilitated sort of trade and contact between the colonists and the Seminoles. And he traveled sometimes on land, going through blazing heat by day and then tormented by mosquitoes at night. He occasionally met up with and shared gifts with indigenous people. He described the plantations and villages near earthwork mounds and causeways. He drew images of the majestic cypress trees and the floating islands of marsh plants in the swamps and marshes. When he was on the river, he survived much of the time by fishing, and he would collect and travel with sort of stashes of fish. And this attracted predators, including wolves and alligators, both of whom would approach and try to steal the fish from him. And this led to the first ever up-close and accurate descriptions and depictions of alligators by a person of European extraction. And at one point in his book, he describes a near attack where he says, quote, two very large ones, meaning alligators, attacked me closely at the same instant, rushing up with their heads and part of their bodies above the water, roaring terribly and belching floods of water over me. They struck their jaws together so close to my ears as almost to stun me. So we we don't know for certain if this description is all true, but it certainly could be true. And again, it it spurred on a sort of fascination, a sense of adventure, and also it started to build a base of actual knowledge about the behavior of these animals and how to survive around them. He also, of course, wrote brilliant, detailed descriptions and depictions of the wild birds decades before Audubon. He really was a far forerunner of Audubon. And in this journey, he traveled as far west as the Sewanee River, which he described as the most beautiful river he'd ever seen. He then eventually looped back, returned to the small trading post on the St. John's River, and was welcomed at a watermelon feast at the Seminole Village. He then sailed back up to Georgia. And then in 1775, he briefly traveled again westward down into Florida and visited Pensacola, and then finally returned to Philadelphia with his enormous trove of manuscripts and drawings. But none of them were published right away. The market and the press were disrupted because of the American Revolution, which created a crisis, again, for Florida. So Florida remained very firmly loyal through the American Revolution, whatever suspicions the governor might have had. Most of the population in the towns was still British merchants, soldiers, and sailors, and laborers and artisans who had close ties to Britain and relied on trade with Britain. And when it comes to the Menorcan population, they were strongly loyal to the governor who had given them freedom and safety in St. Augustine and released them from their indentures. So there really was no significant support in Florida for the revolution. And in fact, at one point, as the war was beginning, the residents of St. Augustine paraded and hanged effigies of Samuel Adams and John Hancock. So almost like a weird mirror image of the protests going on in the other colonies. And the colony, especially St. Augustine, was used as housing and staging areas for British troops that were sent to fight in the southern theater of the war. And the Castillo, which the British now called Fort St. Mark's, was used as a prison for captured American fighters. So Florida was a loyal stronghold, but it was harassed at critical weak points. For instance, in East Florida, there were small cross-border raids coming down, especially from Georgia. 
And in West Florida, there was a much more serious attack and invasion led by the Spanish governor of Louisiana, Bernardo de Galvez. So Louisiana, as I mentioned before, had been handed over to Spain, and they used it as a sort of buffer to protect Spanish America from Britain. And at this point, they had a very ambitious and aggressive governor who wanted to assert Spain's power, and they were aligned with France. They were both under Bourbon kings. They were, it was called a family alliance. And so when France entered the war in support of the American revolutionaries, Spain then followed suit. And Bernardo de Galvez launched serious expeditions where he gathered thousands of fighters from among the local population in Louisiana and set out to the east, attacking the British strongholds of West Florida. And he was able to capture Pensacola in 1781. So this was just one of many blows that Britain was suffering in these later years of the war. It, clear, it was clear by that point that the war was going poorly for the British, and many loyalists who were being dispossessed, who were trying to flee from the warfare, the political turmoil, many loyalist colonists, especially from what we know as the southern states of the Carolinas and Georgia, fled south into Florida. And already by 1780, even before the fall of Pensacola to the Spanish, already by that point, the British colonists in Florida were anticipating that they were going to lose sovereignty in Florida, and they were preparing to basically abandon and flee the colony, as many Spanish had done previously, you know, 20 years earlier. So they, there was sort of a panic. They started selling off properties, including many of the grand old Spanish colonial houses in St. Augustine. They sort of had no choice but to strip out their possessions and amenities and sell at a low price. And this panic allowed many local people, including many of the Menorcan families in St. Augustine, to get those properties cheaply. And that's part of how some of them then have survived down to the present. So finally, in 1783, the other shoe dropped. The inevitable happened, where Britain negotiated a peace with the United States and recognized their independence, and that involved giving up sovereignty of Florida. So in the Treaty of Paris, Britain agreed to vacate all of North America, below the Great Lakes, and many assumed that that would simply mean that Florida would become a territory of the newly independent U.S. But that is not what happened. The residents of Florida were shocked to learn that, in fact, Britain made a separate peace in a separate treaty of Versailles with Spain, in which they agreed to cede both Floridas, East and West Florida, back to Spain. Why did this happen? Well, maybe it was just a way for Britain to try to break up this massive territory that they were abandoning and prevent all of it from going into American hands. It's hard to say. Maybe they thought Spain was weaker. But for whatever reason, Spain was feeling sort of saucy. They'd had some victories, just like in 20 years earlier in the Seven Years' War. They felt they had done pretty well, and they were feeling saucy and wanted to gain something out of this bargain, and they managed to get all of the Floridas back into their possession. So after 1783, the colony is back in Spanish hands, and you have a second Spanish period. And command of the colony is given to a governor, Zespides, who takes up 
rule in St. Augustine. And although technically East and West Florida remain separate administrative units, they're basically governed both from St. Augustine. Most of the British colonists depart. So there's a British exodus, just as there had been a Spanish exodus the last time around. Most of them emigrate to the British West Indies and the Bahamas. But nonetheless, some loyalists do remain, especially those who had come down into Florida to flee from the Revolutionary War and had gone, in many cases, into the forests in West Florida and gotten involved in fur trading, managing this lucrative trade with the indigenous people. So some of those British merchants remain in West Florida, and in East Florida, most of the Menorcans also remain. Some of them are of Spanish heritage, they're overwhelmingly Roman Catholic, and they welcome this return to rule by a Catholic power. And these Menorcans form an important core, really, of town society. They also, like the Scots had done previously, they also form a new sort of coalescing civil society and some lasting social institutions. And one very important example of that is a school that was begun by a Greek carpenter who had come to New Smyrna from the Greek town of Mani, named Juan Ganopoli. So it seems that Ganopoli was able to acquire a homestead in the town during this British exodus. And then around 1800, he built a new large house out of wood, and he set aside the first floor of the house to act as a school. And the school was aimed at educating mainly Menorcan children in reading, writing, and arithmetic, and especially in English since he understood that even though the colony had been transferred back to Spanish sovereignty, nonetheless, trade and colonization from Britain and the United States was important, and the English language was crucial. For a number of decades, he and his associates educated both boys and girls at a very low cost, starting around 1810 up to 1864. So there were promising signs and developments here in this new Spanish period. But nonetheless, the big overall problem outside of St. Augustine was that the colony was depopulated. Again, there were these waves of colonization and then waves of exodus. So they needed population again. And Spain at this point was not able to put in a great deal of resources and investment. They were increasingly distracted with other difficult affairs in the empire, like the Bourbon reforms, the remilitarization of the larger Spanish colonies like Mexico and Peru, the increasing unrest and resistance to the Bourbon reforms in the Spanish empire, and then, especially after 1800, invasion and civil war within Spain itself. So in retrospect, it, it appeared increasingly that those victories in 1763 and 1781 had been something of an Indian summer and that this sort of imperial renewal in the Spanish Empire was unsustainable. There were too many roadblocks and too much opposition, both in the colonies and in Spain. And so the Spanish regime, if they were going to make use of Florida, they had to find investment from somewhere else. And as a policy, they started to aggressively encourage both money investment and migration of more people into the colony, including Indians, traders, and settlers. So as for Indians, the Spanish saw them as potentially good buffers against the expanding United States to the north. And 
With Spanish support, many more Creeks migrated southward, escaping from the expansion of Georgia and the Carolinas. And these Creeks who came into Florida, some of them maintained their Creek identity and ties, but largely they joined into this new growing and evolving Seminole Confederation, which had, as I talked about before, had formed earlier in the 1700s. Then as for traders and merchants, there were already some British fur traders in West Florida in these areas around Apalachicola and Pensacola. They were encouraged to remain there in the hopes that they would facilitate and expand the trade of the colony, and some more came in as well. And in particular, two Scottish merchants were given a monopoly right, the right to sort of manage and oversee the fur trade in West Florida. And they formed a company called the Panton Leslie Company, which had offices at Pensacola and Apalachicola. But this company was challenged by a sort of renegade guerrilla fighter named William Bowles, who had been a British officer who then mutinied during the Revolutionary War, abandoned, ran out into the forests of West Florida, gathered a sort of band of men for a guerrilla campaign to try to seize control of the fur trade away from the Panton Leslie Company. And he saw himself as sort of in a sense, a partisan for Britain against Spain and against this company that had been granted this monopoly right by Spain. So the Panton Leslie Company didn't have enough arms and men to, to fight this kind of guerrilla war. So they had to turn for help to an ally and trading partner, which was a Creek chieftain named Alexander McGillivray, who, like many of the leaders in this world of Florida. He was of partly Scottish and partly Creek ancestry, but he was loyal to Spain. And so he helped to defend the Panton Leslie trading posts against the attacks by Bowles. And ultimately, their kind of alliance was sealed when Panton and Leslie initiated Alexander McGillivray into the Masonic Lodge in Pensacola. So this is another sort of example of how this odd changing hodgepodge world could be partly held together through these institutions like the Masonic Lodges. And then thirdly, as for settlers, colonizers who came to occupy and cultivate the land, there was a new influx mainly of Anglo-Americans across the border who were offered new land and cash grants to Americans and also to British planters to cultivate northeastern Florida. And in 1786, crucially, the Spanish government dropped the ancient requirement that new settlers had to convert to Catholicism. So this further opened the doors. Then in 1791, further interest and enthusiasm for Florida was stimulated when William Bartram's book, simply called Bartram's Travels, was published. And the effects of all of these different stimuli were rapid growth, of course, not only new plantations, but also new villages arising around these new plantations, such as significantly the new town of Fernandina on Amelia Island, which I mentioned up north of St. Augustine. Fernandina became a big center of trade and also of smuggling over the border between Spanish and American territory. Another major effect, of course, was a massively growing Afro-Floridian population. So some of these British and American colonizers who came into Florida brought with them enslaved or free African laborers. 
And as the population of enslaved workers increased, many of them then became free. So Spanish laws and policies were different from the British. They tended to encourage more emancipation. So there was an increasing free Afro-Floridian community, which again was instantiated by another black militia company that formed at St. Augustine. There also was a great degree of intermarriage between people of different backgrounds in Florida, which was allowed and again encouraged by the Catholic Church, where it was illegal in most British territories. So there was intermarriage and some interesting consequential cases of that. For example, the planter Job Wiggins, who freed and then married an enslaved African woman named Nancy, who was originally from Senegal. And after Job Wiggins died, she inherited and became the plantation owner and then also became a major trader in slaves, horses, and slave-produced commodities. So a similar pattern to what has happened in other Spanish colonies, where very often women of African heritage end up performing these sort of intermediary merchant roles. And all in all, by 1800, sections of Florida, at least the the sort of limited areas around St. Augustine and Pensacola, were quite prosperous, multi-ethnic, with a great deal of intermixture. They were sort of cosmopolitan colonial towns. But there were looming problems and tensions, disputes between Spain and the United States that kind of loomed over the future of Florida. And those included the exact location of the border. What was the precise border between Florida and Georgia, or Florida and the Alabama Territory? Who has the right to trade across this border? Who has the right to colonize and settle in Florida? and the disposition of escaped slaves. So again, enslaved African laborers from the United States, which is you know no longer the British colonies, but the new United States, are sometimes able to escape south. It might be very difficult. They might have to go through swamps like the Okefenokee Swamp, but they're able to get into Florida, and the Spanish refuse, in most cases, refuse to return them to those who claim to be their masters, especially if they have converted to Catholicism. They then have sort of asylum in Florida. So are these, there are these mounting tensions between Spanish Florida and the United States that could plausibly lead to war. But in 1795, the prime minister of Spain, Godoy, saw that this was a danger and he wanted to head it off. So Spain at this point is engaged in these brutal wars with the French revolutionary regime. So Spain and France are no longer aligned. They're at war now that the Jacobins have taken over control of France. And Spain is suffering defeats in these wars, and he wants to withdraw from these taxing wars that they simply cannot continue. He wants to make peace with France, and he also sees that he ought to make peace on favorable terms with the United States, which is a growing, increasingly strong expansionary power and which is diplomatically aligned with France. So he wants to defuse any possibility of conflict, and so he offers, he sends emissaries who negotiate the Treaty of San Lorenzo, or in the United States it's called Pinckney's Treaty, after the American diplomat who negotiated it. And this treaty set the border at the 31st parallel, 
which is pretty far south and quite generous to the United States. And he also granted Americans the right to trade in Florida and also in New Orleans, in Louisiana, which was really more important, and certain limited conditional rights to settle and colonize in Florida. So after 1795, there is this continuing stream of new migrants into Florida. And as for their makeup, there really are two different streams that come from different places and that have different aims in Florida. So as for the smaller scale settlers and homesteaders who basically just want to seize small pieces of land, maybe in the forest or among the swamps in order to survive, those are largely American, especially coming from Georgia and Tennessee. But then there also are larger, more powerful families who have the resources to set up large slave plantations. And these families are mostly British. They're not as much American because Americans want plantations in the United States, whereas the British, especially Scottish merchants and investors, they have not had the chance to obtain these sort of fertile tracts of land for cash crops, and they see the opportunity in Florida. So you have a number of Scottish planter families who achieve some degree of success under the Spanish regime. And a couple significant examples, one is Zephaniah Kingsley and his wife, Anna Majigina Jai, who also was Senegalese. She, had, she was a formerly enslaved woman originally from Senegal. So this is an example of a married couple who are able to acquire property and enter society in Florida under Spanish rule where it would have been impossible in the British Empire. And Zephaniah Kingsley and his wife obtained land, especially a large tract in 1814, where they set up a plantation at the mouth of the St. John's River. So a really good prime piece of real estate. This plantation is staffed by 60 enslaved workers. It grows cotton, citrus fruits, and sugarcane. And then later, after Zephaniah's death, again, Anna takes over the enterprise. She obtains more land and slaves. And ultimately, the family's holdings add up to over 32,000 acres staffed by over 200 slaves. And then another example is a Scottish merchant named Robert McHardy, who goes to Florida and marries the daughter of a British planter and obtains over a thousand acres of land down further south, even south of New Smyrna, what had been New Smyrna, around what's now called New Smyrna Beach. And this large plantation cultivates cotton and sugarcane. And he and his wife, Mary, both ultimately die in Charleston in 1807. But their son, John, then goes from South Carolina back into Florida and tries to take possession of the lands, but fails. There was all kinds of confusion and wrangling over titles, who had been granted what by the British regime, who had been granted what by the Spanish, who had bought what from whom. So he was unable to take back possession of the plantation lands. And so by default, it seems he went into the interior to trade with the Seminole, lived for many years among the Seminole, becomes more or less a member of their confederation, but then joins the British Navy. And... The journey of this particular family, I think, exemplifies how Florida was very lucrative and appealing. But without British political control, the British planters could not necessarily hang on. And there was all kinds of disruption and confusion over possession of the lands with these changes of sovereignty. 
And these British planters ultimately were encroached upon and outcompeted by other newcomers, especially Americans. So they're now, after 1800, there were some new colonists coming south from the United States and obtaining land. And so Florida gradually, after 1800, 1805, by 1810, it's really become the southern frontier of the United States. And there are similar patterns of sort of instability, rapid expansion, speculation, much like on the western frontier. But it moved more slowly because unlike the western frontier, where if you were lucky, you could move across a corridor of land from east to west that had similar climate, similar terrain, in Florida, the, the southern frontier became increasingly tropical and it changed mile by mile as you went south. So it was slower and it was more complicated and more risky to expand in Florida. Though also in the West, there were some Americans now coming down from what's now Alabama, crossing the border into West Florida and into, into areas on the Western Gulf Coast that today are not actually part of Florida. They're part of Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. And there, too, there was even greater constant diplomatic confusion, disputed sovereignty, disputed borders. And in 1810, these conflicts came to a head, firstly, when some Anglo-American colonists rebelled and seized control of the far western end of West Florida over around Lake Pontchartrain in what's now Louisiana. And they called their sort of rebel commonwealth the Republic of Florida. And this sort of self-organized coup at the time was called filibustering, right? Filibustering can mean sort of, it can mean piracy or sort of striking out and rebelling for freedom. So this filibustering had a moment of success there where these colonists took control of that section of West Florida. And then the United States annexed the region and made it part of the Louisiana Territory. So by that time, most of Louisiana has been acquired by the U.S. in the Louisiana Purchase. So they happily just take this so-called Republic of Florida and glom it on to Louisiana. And this success then inspired a similar, you could even say copycat action, just a couple years later in 1811-12 to 12, over in East Florida. So in 1811, President Madison dispatched an American general named George Matthews to Florida in order, in theory, to help defend Florida against possible British attack. And he was authorized to, quote, accept any territory that Spain found that they couldn't defend effectively. And accept, of course, really was code for seize territory. So at this point, Spain is a severely declining power. They don't have the numbers, the money, the political control to defend Florida from a serious attack. And as tensions mount between the U.S. and Great Britain, the Americans don't want to see this colony that was really a de facto American frontier. They don't want to see it fall into British hands. So General George Matthews goes in supposedly as a friendly ally to help to defend Florida. But meanwhile, Matthews secretly communicated with the federal government and took information, arms, money, resources to organize and incite armed migrants coming into Florida from Georgia. And he wants to use these migrants effectively 
as a proxy to seize control of this section, the northeastern section of Florida, while keeping the U.S. hands clean, maintaining some plausible deniability that it was not a U.S. action. And finally, in March 1812, Matthews instigated an armed uprising of Anglo-American colonists, mainly on Amelia Island, that critical island in the northeast corner. And these so-called patriots came together, seized control of Amelia Island, and declared the Republic of East Florida. And a few months later, in July 1812, they published a constitution, elected a president. You know, they're doing the whole sovereignty thing. And they do all of this with the tacit support of the U.S. Navy. And with that sort of quiet backing, they then decamp, march south, down the coast of Florida, attacking plantations, occupying strategic points, and ultimately they attempt and fail to capture St. Augustine. And when they, they fail at that point, the U.S. government, of course, completely disavows them, denies any knowledge of the rebellion. And so the rebellion sort of falls into chaos. They ransack and raid plantations, but then they flee when a British fleet arrives. They withdraw ultimately back to Amelia Island, and they try to fortify the island, but it is destroyed by the Seminoles, who at this point see these patriots as a greater threat than the Spanish. So this incident, it ultimately fizzled, but it showed the great precarity of the Spanish regime. Spanish Florida was becoming more and more vulnerable, and even the great fortresses of El Castillo and of Matanzas that had been so effective and uh, durable, they are eroding. This soft coquina stone doesn't really hold up perfectly year after year, winter after winter, and there can be freezes in St. Augustine. And there also were just not enough funds and manpower to maintain them in the garrisons. So clearly, Spanish Florida is becoming an outpost of a declining power. And this situation really becomes even more embarrassing for Spain five years later in 1817, when various parties of pirates and buccaneers begin to really invade and even occupy parts of northeast Florida. And in particular, the Scottish adventurer called Sir Gregor McGregor and his group of 55 men were able to land and seize Amelia Island. So it's sort of an easy sitting duck. And just the following year in 1818, a group of Mexican pirates invaded and declared Amelia Island part of Mexico. And it's really just becoming a sort of haven and entrepot of various sorts of crime, smuggling, and... This was a sign of the times that not only was Spain in decline, but also Britain was increasingly losing interest after they had failed to recapture North America in 1812, and they had been defeated in the Battle of New Orleans in 1814. They also now are sort of giving up interest in the North American continent, and it's just becoming a sort of free-for-all zone of, of lawlessness. But meanwhile, the U.S. was rising to become the real de facto power in the region, and they had their eye on Florida. And what was going to stop them? If not Spain and not Britain, what was the real obstacle? What was the real counterweight that could stop a U.S. takeover? Really, it was the Seminoles. So to the south and the west, away from St. Augustine, the Seminole Confederation continued to grow, it was further bolstered by African runaways 
from the United States and St. Augustine who could escape into the forests and the swamps and join the Seminoles. So there was an increasing wing and population of black Seminoles. So by 1817, 1818, there is intensifying conflict and border crossing warfare and harassment, not between the Spanish and the Americans, but between the Seminoles and the Americans. So the new pattern now is that Florida becomes a battleground between these two powers, the U.S. and the Seminoles, especially the large Creek contingent in the Seminoles. And in the autumn of 1817, so at the same time that these buccaneers and pirates are landing in Amelia Island, the first Seminole War breaks out when a party of American raiders attacked a Seminole village in Georgia, in what's now southern Georgia. And so Seminole warriors retaliated. They attacked a boat on the Apalachicola River and killed 43 people. So the following year in 1818, the U.S. government appoints General Andrew Jackson, the same sort of war hero who had won the Battle of New Orleans a few years earlier. They appoint Jackson to take up command of a force that then raided and attacked villages along the Suwannee River and Lake Mikosukee. And in this expedition, they destroyed the small remaining village that still stood at the site of Anhayaka, of what had once been the Appalachian capital. So in retaliation, Creeks raided the U.S. outposts in Alabama, particularly Fort Mims, and then retreated back down into Florida. So Jackson counterattacked and led a retaliatory mission into Florida, which ultimately marched all the way and seized Pensacola, where he, he occupied the town and imprisoned the Spanish officials, basically viewing them as complicit with these Seminole attacks. And he also captured and executed two British fur traders, these sort of fur traders in the West who were also closely aligned with the Seminoles, but he also blames them. And when he executes them, this causes a further international incident because they were British subjects. So now there's a question of whether Britain is going to leap in and this is gonna become another international war. So by that point, Spain is exasperated and just wants to wash their hands of the whole issue. This colony is not worth fighting over. So whereas the United States government and American frontier colonists are land hungry, Spain just wants to get liabilities off of their hands. And so more and more, the obvious answer is for Spain to make a deal and simply transfer control of Florida to the United States. So they call for peace between the Americans and the Seminoles, and they begin negotiating a deal. So in 1819, American and Spanish envoys negotiate the Adams-Onise Treaty, which first and foremost cedes all of Florida, east and west, to the United States. And to the west, it draws the line at the Perdido River, just between Pensacola and Mobile. So more or less the outline of what's today Florida. It stipulates that the United States must take up all the debts that Spain owed to Indian nations and traders in the territory, which had become significant. And Spain, after this deal is worked out, Spain is very reluctant to ratify, especially after their diplomats learn that actually many northerners in the United States 
disliked the idea of annexing Florida because they thought it was unnecessary, it was too much territory to control, and because it would create, possibly create another slave state. That was the fear. So, in fact, many Northerners are against it, and hence there's wrangling and difficulty in both countries in getting the treaty ratified. And it ultimately takes two years until finally in 1821, the U.S. ratifies, declares Florida to be a territory under the same sort of governance as the Northwest Territory, meaning that it will be administered by the federal government until it eventually becomes a state. And they sent Andrew Jackson then to St. Augustine to act as a temporary custodian to manage the transition, settle land disputes, and so on, and prepare the way for American government. And finally, in 1822, the U.S. actually takes up possession. They send officials to take up command at the various towns and fortresses. They also send the naval commander Matthew Perry, the same one who later goes to Japan. They send Matthew Perry down to plant an American flag on Key West, the southernmost tip of the island chain below the peninsula, in order, by implication, to lay claim to the whole peninsula and the Keys. And the following year, the U.S. sends an anti-piracy squadron that uses Key West as a base against sort of piracy, ordinary piracy and smuggling, and also slave trading, which at this point is illegal in U.S. waters. So with this transfer to the United States, once again, many residents emigrate, especially to other Spanish territories. For example, a great number of the free black people in Florida emigrate. They have a lot to lose. They know that American laws and policies are different from Spain's. So in the following few years, many black Floridians who remain in the territory lose certain basic rights, like freedom of assembly, the right to carry arms, the right to testify in court. They're more and more subject to curfews, and they can be re-enslaved for various reasons, like because of debts. Also, interracial marriage is banned again. So under these new restrictions, black Floridians have to decide what to do. And poorer free blacks were under especially great threat, and the largest number of them emigrated, or some who couldn't make it all the way to Cuba or Puerto Rico, instead ran away and joined the Seminoles. So you get more black Seminoles. There were other more wealthy well-established black Floridians, and some of them remained. One of them was Nancy Wiggins, the wealthy widow that I mentioned before. So she remains, and her children, who are biracial, marry into various different families. It's sort of, you know, at this point, it's impossible to really draw a clear color line. So they marry into different families of different backgrounds. Some other mixed-race families, such as the Kingsleys, do emigrate. And Anna Kingsley went to Cuba, and it happens that she remained there for several decades in Cuba until after the Civil War and the abolition of slavery, at which point she then returned back to Florida and retook possession of the plantations that she had left there. So the U.S. government has to create some sort of regime to govern this new territory, which is already fast growing, and they have rejoined Pensacola back together with East Florida into one large territory, which means they have to somehow figure out how to govern this wide stretch with no effective road or direct communication between them. And so they decide that initially they will alternate 
the meetings of the territorial government between St. Augustine and Pensacola, which is extremely dangerous and inefficient. You have to put everybody on a ship and get all the way around Key West, or you've got to somehow get you know a journey on horseback through the forests. This is really not feasible. So they decide to create a new capital for the territorial government somewhere in between Pensacola and St. Augustine. And they choose a convenient spot, which is a series of abandoned, cleared fields near the destroyed site of what had been on Hayeka. And the Seminoles, it happens, called this general area Tallahassee, which was simply a Creek word for the old town. So they they associated it with a town that was now not only old, but eradicated. So American officials move in and begin to survey and set up a town in 1822 and 23. Now, the Seminoles in that region are fairly strong. You have the sort of main northern wing of the Seminoles centered right near there. So they object and try to expel the Americans, but they are defeated and confronted by a serious American force, which now is really too big and too well armed for the Seminoles to resist. And they force the Seminoles from this area to withdraw southward into the area around Tampa Bay and and eastward from there, basically in the center, the middle part of the Florida Peninsula. And the federal government declares this area to be a reservation. Now, the leader of this northern Seminole group was named Niamathla, and he resisted for as long as he thought possible, but then was forced into signing a treaty called the Treaty of Fort Moultrie, in which the Seminole group, except for a few villages who were allowed to remain behind around Apalachicola, this, most of this Seminole group is forced into this reservation in central Florida, and further, they also have to allow Americans to travel into that reservation for trade and to retrieve escaped slaves. So after 1823, most of the indigenous people are cleared out of that whole panhandle area. And Tallahassee is proclaimed a city in 1824. It holds its first town elections in 1826. And it grows very rapidly, largely due to trade and land speculation, as it looks more and more like this whole area of northern and northwestern Florida that has barely been colonized before is now basically ripe for the picking for Americans to seize, clear, and cultivate. So Tallahassee grows very rapidly, and many start to set up plantations around the town, but it takes a long time before they are able to succeed. Many of them fail because they don't understand the terrain, the climate, they don't know the right crops, they don't have the right skills. And for example, the territorial government granted as a gift a large tract outside Tallahassee to the Marquis de Lafayette, this war hero who symbolized really the alliance between America and France. And Lafayette never went, but he did send agents to this land tract and laborers to try to clear the land and to grow olives and silkworms. But of course, the endeavor fails. These are not really the right, <laughs> the right products for that environment. So it fails, but nonetheless, 
these various French laborers and agents that had gone to this plantation withdrew and resettled in Tallahassee, and hence you got a French section of Tallahassee called Frenchtown, much like the Menorcan section that existed in St. Augustine. Now, once Tallahassee was an effective working town, and you had an effective government that could keep law and order, and that was located basically, you know, in what we now call the Florida Panhandle, sort of close to the middle of the northern border of Florida, but a little bit further to the west. This then opens the floodgates for a massive southward migration from the United States into Florida, and the population of the territory exploded. It was a sort of continuing boom over the next several decades, and the population of Florida quadrupled. According to federal censuses, it quadrupled between 1830 and 1860. So whereas it was found to be about 35,000 people, already a sizable, substantial territory in 1830, it has quadrupled to 140,000 by 1860. And again, as with the Spanish period, there are two distinct streams of migration. There's a more plebeian migration and an elite migration. So first, as for the more plebeian migration, these are largely small farmers, fishers, traders, and cattle herders who cross into Florida and venture into little-known territory that hasn't already been claimed. Many of these are of Scotch-Irish extraction. They tend to be religious nonconformists, those who did not belong to the Episcopal Church. They come most of all from Georgia, but also some from Tennessee, North Carolina, the Alabama Territory. And generally, they live by homesteading with small, self-built log cabins, which might then eventually be replaced with larger two-story wooden farmhouses. They survive on hunting, fishing, gardening, and raising livestock. They are largely Baptist and Methodist, at least by 1830. Those are the denominations that they've coalesced around. They practice a religion largely based on the Bible, home reading of the Bible, home prayer, and also occasional sermons by circuit-riding preachers who go out through the back country. And also they hold occasional gatherings for prayer, for trade, for music, and celebration of occasions like weddings. And this sort of society of basically independent homesteaders and small villages in the less desirable, less fertile zones of Florida, this comes to be called the cracker culture or cracker society. Now, you may have heard the word cracker in your life as a racial slur directed at white people or particularly at lower class white people, but that is not what it traditionally means in Florida. And it, it has deeper origins. Sometimes people say cracker is a reference to the crack of the whip from cattle drivers. Some people say it has something to do with the food they eat. None of those things are true. In fact, the word cracker goes back centuries into at least the Elizabethan era in English, where it was a word usually that people of the gentry or the upper class used to refer to sort of remote homesteading small farmers, husbandmen, and yeomen who lived in remote areas and who were generally independent and did not, were seen as uncivilized or uncouth. 
right? It sort of means bumpkin. And it seems that it comes from the verb to crack, which could mean to speak in a sort of boastful, uh, intemperate, uh, bold way, right? As into wisecrack or crack a joke. And so it was a reference to how these people were seen as kind of insubordinate, bold, as a reflection then of their their independence, the fact that they didn't live with a, a patron. And this cracker society expanded and it came to predominate mainly in northeastern and central Florida. So we're talking about the area around St. Augustine and down around what's now Ocala and Gainesville. And also there were scatterings of small homesteads and small settlements down the Atlantic coast, even as far down as Biscayne Bay by about 1840. So this is the sort of stretch, you know, the eastern coast, but concentrated around the northeast and north central areas. That's where the crackers are the, now the main population. Now, this is in contrast to the elite migration, which comprises many speculators who acquire large tracts of land for slave plantations. And this is more common mainly in northwestern Florida, right? So that area around Tallahassee and even westward all the way to Pensacola. And these speculators are able to obtain thousands of enslaved laborers, mainly being purchased and trafficked down from the United States into these plantation areas of Florida. The main success, of course, rests on cotton. And this main Tallahassee area, this sort of zone, which comes to be called Middle Florida, around Tallahassee and east and west of Tallahassee. This becomes basically in a, a southward extension of the Black Belt. There's this stretch of land, a very fertile land, running along the southern edge of the Appalachian Mountains from the Carolinas through Georgia and Alabama into Mississippi. Well, the terrain is somewhat similar, and the soil is also quite fertile in this middle Florida area. And so it became more or less a, an extension of the Black Belt. And a plantation society quickly coalesced in middle Florida, and it has the largest concentration of slaves, according to the censuses. This is where the largest number of enslaved workers are in Florida. And the region is dominated by a strong planter upper class, much like in other parts of the South, like Tidewater, Virginia, or the South Carolina Low Country. A planter upper class takes hold and cultivates at least some degree of gentility, right? References to European aristocratic life, European art and literature, and the sort of pretensions of a genteel lifestyle but also significantly a large number of the plantations, even more than other parts of the South. Many of them are owned by absentee owners who actually live and spend most of their time in Tallahassee and take advantage of that town life while the plantations are left to be run by overseers. And Tallahassee served as a great center of speculation and investment. It's a boom town. In 1830, the first bank in Florida, the Union Bank, is founded and it operates for 13 years and it's able to funnel investments and capital into this growing plantation society. In 1834, the Tallahassee St. Mark's Railroad is completed, so the first rails in Florida 
which connect Tallahassee to St. Mark's, which was the site of the old Spanish fortress of San Marcos de Apalachee, down near the mouth of the Apalachee River, which then has close access to the Gulf of Mexico. So now Tallahassee has a rail connection to the sea. Also in 1834, the first large hotel called Brown's Inn is built, and the town quickly has several newspapers reporting information that is carried along the steamboat and stagecoach routes, mainly east-west, connecting from Mobile through Pensacola and Appalachicola over to St. Augustine and up to Georgia and South Carolina. In 1839, construction begins on a state capitol building, and all in all, the town has the excitement of a boom town and the typical vices. It has a racetrack, and the mayor of the town himself describes this racetrack as, quote, a hotbed of vice, intemperance, gambling, and profanity. So you can imagine the place to be on a Friday night and probably a lot more fun than actually running a plantation out in the countryside. There also is some limited degree of settlement down on the southern peninsula, again, along the coast. And this is facilitated and protected to some degree by the federal government. The government builds lighthouses on Key West and Key Biscayne, both in 1825. And around both of those areas, there are small scatterings of makeshift settlements with frontier settlers, mostly crackers and also a few plantations here and there, such as one on Key Biscayne, which was started in the 1830s. And as this small, remote population in South Florida grows bit by bit, it's impossible for, for law and order to be administered there from Tallahassee, right? It's too far. And so the territory starts to be broken up into more counties, and Dade County is founded in 1836. And Dade County originally comprises the whole stretch of South Florida from Palm Beach through what's now Miami, Fort Lauderdale, and all of the Keys. So that whole southern end of the peninsula is put into Dade County in 1836. And then in the early 1840s, a small village forms around a small fortified outpost on the Miami River, basically at what is now Miami. But it is a, a tiny outpost with altogether 96 people in the whole surrounding area. So by 1840, you can see some significant successes in the growth, the prosperity, and the expansion of the American territory. But there are big problems plaguing them. One is friction and resentment between the different classes, especially these two classes I've been talking about, the sort of plebeian cracker people and the planters. And there are large areas of eastern and central Florida that were simply too sandy in the soil or too swampy to farm with large plantations, and hence they become, in effect, the cracker region, right? They, they remain a sort of backcountry that is negotiated over and sometimes fought over between the frontier settlers and the Seminoles. And these crackers in the East, they really resent the power of the unelected government in Tallahassee. So there's, there's still at this point, there's no democratically elected government. These are officials appointed from Washington 
And those appointments are largely governed by the machinations of the rich, powerful elite. So the government in Tallahassee is really dominated by this small planter-merchant elite circle that is sometimes called the nucleus. That's its colloquial name. And Florida becomes a battleground of these two factions, and they split over the question of development, whether public money should be invested in creating things like roads, rails, harbors. And the pro-development faction is centered in Tallahassee, and it aligns with the Whig Party. Even though many of them were Jackson Democrats and even friends with Andrew Jackson, nonetheless, they affiliate themselves with the Whig Party, which believes in internal improvements and infrastructure. And then the anti-development faction is centered in St. Augustine and has its base in the eastern part of Florida. So the Whig group advocates for projects like roads, rails, wharves, which can be funded and administered through state banks, state banks that sort of launder and circulate both public and private investment. But where would this public money come from? The territory relied on basically three sources of money. Federal subsidies, which were significant, which were enough at least to run the territorial government, and then also license fees and poll taxes, taxes on individual persons. So the Eastern group naturally fears that if the territorial government pursues these expensive investments and puts money into these state banks, that the burden of the cost will fall on them, right, through this really regressive tax system. And that money then will be funneled to fund projects that will mostly benefit the planter class and not them, right? Increasingly, these sort of backwoods people, they just want to be left alone to exploit the natural environment as they see fit. They don't want rails, plantations, towns coming in and displacing them. So for both reasons, this cracker party fears encroachment by the plantations and by big projects, and they lash out against land speculators and investors, including Yankees, whom they see as kind of you know, the, the harbingers of doom, right? When, when speculators from the north come into your region, that means you're in trouble. You're about to get taxed to death and kicked out of your land. And this intense dispute between the two parties is fought out quite viciously, of course, as tends to happen in newspapers in the 1830s and 40s. And it culminates to some degree in a wave of protests in 1838, in which the anti-development party is able to force a constitutional convention to be called. So they demand some sort of voice and representation in government. You know, they see that the, the they have the power of numbers, not of money and influence, but they have the power of numbers. And if they can get a representative voice in the territorial government, they can counter this wave of development that is facilitated through banks. So a constitutional convention is held in 1839, and they create a constitution that includes an elected representative council. And in this convention also, the anti-bank or anti-development party is able to get a narrow majority. And with that majority, they're able to put into the constitution many restrictions, especially on big development projects and banking, 
For example, they require a two-thirds majority in order to grant a charter to any bank. Also, any bank's charter can only last for 20 years and then it must expire. And also, it facilitates the creation of many more counties throughout the territory, which makes it possible then for people out in these backwoods and frontier areas to get local courts that can administer justice, that can protect their claims to property and deeds, and also that each county will have at least one representative in the council. And this offers the possibility of very small remote communities getting a disproportionate share of power. But the compromise from the other side, which makes it possible for them to get through all of these stipulations that are advantageous to the backwoods people, the cracker society, the compromise is that the legislature will be apportioned to the different districts and counties using the three-fifths rule. So the same sort of three-fifths clause that existed in the federal constitution which says, when we give states representation in Congress, we count all the free people plus three-fifths of the slaves. So this was in the federal constitution, but it was not used. It was very rarely used in any state constitutions. It was used in North Carolina and Georgia, but it was only applied to apportioning the lower house of the legislature. Now, Florida was taking a big step here by saying, we're going to use this system in apportioning both the house and the senate both houses. So what that meant is that the planter region, this sort of middle Florida region with the big slave plantations, would be massively overrepresented in the legislature because the fact that they had slaves would give them <laughs> would give them bigger representation, right? Not that the slaves get to vote, but rather they give more votes to the slave owning population in that region. So this was the counterbalancing compromise. And it happened probably because even though the anti-bank and anti-development party had a slight majority, nonetheless, the slave owners by 1839 were very organized and they're on the defensive. They knew that there was rising anti-slavery opinion throughout much of the country. There even was some anti-slavery opinion in the Upper South, in places like Maryland and Delaware. And they saw slavery as an important interest that was under siege politically. And so they were self-conscious, they were organized and coordinated, and they acted aggressively to put in this sort of fail-safe to secure their power in the legislature. And ultimately, this constitution, once it was worked out, was put to a public vote and was adopted by referendum. And there were reasons for both sides, for both people in both regions to complain, right? It was a complicated deal. And so it was controversial throughout the territory. And ultimately, it passed in the referendum with only 51% a hair's breadth success. But it was adopted and started to be put into effect. While the Cracker Party appreciated that they could put these blocks on banking and big development, nonetheless, the fact remained that these plantations were very lucrative. There was constant speculation and scouting out to find more territory, to buy it up, to, to use corrupt methods, coercion to get more territory. And so the Cracker Society still was pushed continually further south 
through the 1830s and 40s. And as that happens, of course, they in turn press more and more on what had been understood to be seminal territory. And so this is why in the 1830s, the Second Seminole War broke out. So you may remember back in the 1820s, I said that the Seminole leader up in the Panhandle area named Neamathla was forced to lead and withdraw his people southward into central Florida, and they had to allow Americans to build roads, to travel and trade, and to pursue slaves into that territory. So this was a really precarious agreement, and it was violated many times on both sides. It really was almost a dead letter right from the get-go, and these violations only escalated as these frontiersmen pressed southward below what's now Ocala and started to provoke more and more fights and raids back and forth against the Seminole people. So this was already a delicate situation when in 1830, President Andrew Jackson signed the Indian Removal Act, which authorized the federal government to force all Indians out of the zone east of the Mississippi and force them to resettle west of the Mississippi. So although there was some ambiguity, you know, does this apply to Florida? Florida's more south of the Mississippi. Nonetheless, Jackson did apply it to the Seminole people in central Florida. And in 1832, the government summoned Seminole leaders and delegates and using threats and pressure forced them supposedly to sign a treaty which said that they agreed that they would merge together with the Creek Nation and with the Creeks would venture west and resettle in the Western territories within three years. Now, it was then disputed afterwards whether or not these delegates had ever actually given assent to this move to the West. But that at least is what Jackson, the Jackson administration, claimed. So in 1834, the government appointed Wiley Thompson as a superintendent to oversee the removal of the Seminole people out of Florida. But by that time, there already was an intense split among the Seminole between those who wanted to accept the move to the West and hope to get good lands that then they would have secure title over and those who wanted to stay and fight. And a warrior named Oseola emerged as the main leader of the opposition. And Oseola had been born in Alabama. He was of partly Creek and partly Scottish ancestry, again, like many of these prominent leaders we've seen. As a child, he had migrated with his family southward into Florida. And it happens that he was part of that seminal group from the area of Tallahassee that had been expelled and forced to move south. So this party holds out and resists moving. Escalating conflicts then break out, uh, guerrilla raids. An American army detachment was moving between two small forts near Tampa, and a Seminole War Party attacked and killed almost all of them. This has been called the Dade Massacre, although it is an act of war against soldiers. But they killed almost the entire party, and then later that day, Oseola pressed the advantage, tracked down, and killed General Thompson himself. And this war then dragged on for several more years. The Seminoles attacked plantations and outposts, used guerrilla tactics, taking advantage of the geography to retreat into swamps and other difficult terrain. 
And the U.S. basically was ineffective and losing the war until they started responding in kind, sending small mobile teams to pursue these seminal bands into the woods and swamps and eventually overwhelming them. In October 1837, General Thomas Jessup made a false offer of a truce. So he waved a white flag of truce and invited Seminole leaders to negotiate for a peace. But it was a trick, and he took Oceola prisoner. A couple of months later, in December 1837, the U.S. took advantage of this lack of leadership and pressed their advantage. They sent a force of a 1,000 men under Zachary Taylor to attack the major Seminole encampment at Lake Okeechobee. So they're venturing further and further south, further down into this Seminole territory. They destroy most of that encampment. And then in the following year, in 1838, Jessup dispatched a force of 1,500 men to attack and overwhelm the remaining Seminoles along the Loxahatchee River. And meanwhile, while this is going on, Osceola was moved to a prison in Charleston. And while there, he, he only survives for a few months before he dies from the conditions in the prison. And while he's there, he's visited by various political figures, artists, writers, and he becomes sort of a, a folk symbol, a bit of a folk hero symbolizing doomed noble resistance. You know, the same sort of thing that's done to many Native American leaders. But over the next several years into the early 1840s, there are continued small engagements and skirmishes. But really, the main Seminole forces have already been defeated, and most of the Seminole are forced to move west into Indian territory, to what's now Oklahoma. But at least a few hundred remain, withdrawing into the increasingly inaccessible redoubts in the southeastern corner of Florida, in that area that had once been the Calusa Kingdom, and which was the most difficult for outsiders to penetrate. So although there is still a holdout Seminole group in southeastern Florida, nonetheless, the war more or less results in the neutralization of the Seminole as a serious threat to the United States, at least for the foreseeable future. And this fact then paves the way for the total political and social integration of Florida into the United States, and ultimately, at least in principle, to statehood. So they have a constitution now, which includes representative government. They have secured their southern frontier. They have strong trade and a sizable and growing population, more than big enough to become a state at this point. So it seems as if statehood should be possible. And indeed, in 1845, the state house in Tallahassee was completed. So even aesthetically, it seemed to be ready to go to become a state. But nonetheless, the idea of statehood continued to be very controversial and divisive. And it was disputed and people were divided over it both within Florida, within the territory, and also in Congress, which ultimately makes the decision of whether a territory becomes a state. So why is that? Why were there these continuing problems and conflicts? And why was Florida statehood delayed for so long, even though it seemed as if they had been ready for some time? And ultimately, why did it happen? What made the difference? Well, those hopefully are things I will talk about next time in my next lecture, which will pick up at the movement for statehood in Florida.
So if you enjoyed this lecture and if you want to hear all of my material, including the material for patrons only, such as my last lecture on the archaeological discovery of the library of Ashurbanipal, the largest trove of documents from the ancient world that has ever been found, please go to my Patreon page and become a supporter at any level, even if it's just a dollar. Thank you.